Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Almost 40,000 people have signed a petition to demand the government take more action against vulture funds in Ireland. The petition called on Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, to take action as part of Budget 2022. Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, Rory Hearn, Cunigel TD, Emer Higgins, and People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, are here to discuss. In Ireland, the number of people seeking help for eating disorders is on the increase. Child and adolescent psychotherapist Dr. Coleman Nocter will be here to talk about that alongside training and development manager at Bodywise, Harriet Parsons. And later, we cross live to CNN correspondent Tom Foreman as the Facebook whistleblower appeared today before US lawmakers in a push for regulation of the social media giant. Let us know your views on housing this evening using our Twitter hashtag TonightVMTV. Joining me now to discuss our housing crisis, Finnegal TD, Emer Higgins, People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, and Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, Rory Hearn. And Rory, I want to come to you first because this petition was handed in uh, today to government. Uh, remove investor funds from buying up homes. You have 38,000 signatures on that petition. Tell us why you came up with it, why you felt the need for that petition to get to government now. Yeah, well, I think it was very significant that we had that amount of signatures, that, that's people from across the country who signed it. And the petition started last May, or sorry, in May of this year, um, when people probably remember the investment fund bought up the bulk purchase of homes in Maynooth. Um, but this is something that I have been highlighting for a number of years, have been researching, has been the growth of these institutional investors buying up um, homes in Ireland, buying up property and increasingly also developing these new build to rent properties. And the problem with them is that if we look at what they have done and their impact on the housing system, they have made housing more unaffordable. The rents that they charge are way beyond existing market rents. We've also seen them engage in evicting tenants, this idea of churning tenants so that they can get in higher paid tenants. And the institutional investors are now at a point where they're warping, distorting our housing system. They're locking people out of being able to buy homes. And I am very concerned that this is the future of our housing system, that they play a bigger role, and also the role of policy in this, that government policy has been supporting and encouraging and actively subsidising these institutional investors to come into Ireland over the last eight years or so. In initially, 
to try and deal with what are called the toxic loans off the, the banks, um, but increasingly to add to our supply of housing. And this is very prob problematic because we have, they have a tax break called the Real Estate Invest Investment Trust tax break. And that's part of why we handed in the petitions this week because the budget takes place next week. We think that tax break should be removed. Okay, um, just because this did come into the spotlight, did you say with that bulk buying of the housing estate in Maynooth, which was back um, in early summer. And at that point, the government said they would take action on it. And they did come up with a number of measures. Um, stamp duty increased um, to, to stop the bulk buying of homes and housing estates. What do you think of those measures that they said would do something to tackle cuckoo funds? Yeah, well, the big problem with the measures was that they didn't include apartments. And I was looking at the figures from the CSO for uh, this, uh, the first half of this year. In Dublin, most new homes that were built were apartments. And we know that investment funds are buying up all the apartments that are being built. So essentially, we have home buyers being locked out of the new home market in Dublin. That is very significant. So I think the big problem with the measures that the government brought in was they didn't include apartments. And apartments are homes. I know people, for example, were looking to buy on the Griffith Wood development um, in Merino, which has been bought up by a US investment fund. They were told that there's no way they'll be able to buy them. They're all going to be built to rent. And the problem is that they're going to be rent at rents. For example, in that Griffith Wood development, almost 2,000 euro for a one-bedroom apartment. They are unsustainable rents and they're locking in unsustainable rents and making our housing system permanently unaffordable. Okay, um, Emer Higgins, you heard what Rory Hearn had to say there, that there was government action, but it hasn't really gone far enough in tackling uh, these investment funds from buying up homes from people who really need them. Yeah, so I suppose there has been action, as you have said yourself, Claire, and as, as Rory has acknowledged, in particular when it comes to investment funds, um, which were, unfortunately, they were effectively gazumping first-time buyers who wanted to buy three- and four-bed family homes. And action has been taken by the government on that. I suppose the debate here tonight is about why that action hasn't been taken when it comes to apartment blocks. Um, and the answer for that is it was it was a policy decision by government. It was a very Why? purposeful decision not to. Well, it comes down to supply and demand. I mean, that's what our housing crisis at, at the moment is, is, is literally built on. It's built on the fact that we have huge demand for homes to rent and homes to buy, and we don't have enough supply. And it's all about making sure that we're generating houses, that we're generating apartments for people to live in, to drive down the cost to buy, to drive down the cost to purchase. Um, and... and we require external investment. We require external external um, money to come in and help us do that. Do you, because do you, despite us putting four billion euro a year into fixing the housing prices, and that's twice what we've been paying up until now, despite us put, putting four billion euro a year into it, we're still going to have a shortfall if we're to deliver 30,000 homes plus a year. It doesn't really say a lot, does it, that part of the solution is getting investment funds to build these apartment blocks and for them to rent them out to people for €1,900 Euro a month. They shouldn't be renting them out at that price. We all agree on that, absolutely. But until, but, we, but until, we, about build, that? Well, until we build more 
that's how we drive down the price. When we, when we have enough supply, that that it, it's you know at the moment it, it's not a renter's market; it's a, it's a landowner's we market. We also know and we need to get to. We also sec. know that investment funds are holding on to these properties and not immediately renting them out, so that they can keep that value very high. Well, I think it's important to 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 be frank with people as to the role that investment funds play. 5% at the moment, 5% of residential tenancies are within institutional landlords. Over 70% of landlords in this country are landlords who own just one property. And, and they're, they're the most significant yeah. player in um, this market. We, and we shouldn't get, get lost from the sight of I, that either. Okay, but, but just on the subject, and Paul Murphy, I might bring you in here, um, on, on a lack of you know, tackling investment funds when it comes to apartment ownership and, mm -hmm. and what they're doing and controlling the apartments in city centres. How important do you think it is for people to be able to live in our cities, in our urban centres, without investment funds, you know, ru running and, and controlling the rental market there? Yeah, well, it's, it's vital. But look, if the government was serious about tackling the issue of cuckoo funds, well, then they obviously would have done it, not just on houses, but the apartment blocks, which they're particularly focused on buying up. They're, they're not serious about it precisely for the reason that Emer gave. And that's their position, is they, they think this whole thing is a supply and demand issue. And what we have to do is incentivise these institutional investors to come in here and they're going to build houses and those homes are going to trickle down to ordinary people. That's the policy they've been pursuing. They rolled out the red carpet in terms of massive tax breaks to these cuckoo funds to come in in 2013, Fine Gael in government, to... No, pay no corporation tax. That's what the, the effect of these uh, REITs is. And, and that's their purpose. And the point being that, in my opinion, this trickle-down economics of housing doesn't work. What actually happens is that there is a housing crisis for the majority in this state. Mm. I mean, one in 10 people are now spending more than 60% of their net income on housing. The housing crisis for a majority, but there's a housing opportunity for those who are represented by the government. The, the landlords, the big corporate landlords, are getting super rich. The amount of wealth being transferred from those who don't own any home to those who own multiple homes has more than doubled over the last 10 years. Rents have more okay. than doubled over the last 10 years. That's who Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil represent. One in four of them are landlords. You look at the Attorney General, the man who okay. said, we can't do ban on rents or yes. evictions is unconstitutional, also a massive uh, landlord. That's who these people represent and that's who's benefiting from their policies. It's not an accident, it's Ema, by design. What, what Housing for All sets out is the plan to resolve the housing crisis. And part of that, you're absolutely right, the government's position on that is we need more supply. We need more homes to be able to, to adequately um, to adequately deal with the demand that's out there. And that's exactly what Housing for All does. It's about making sure that we have the owner-occupier guarantee for mm. the likes of those three and four bed family homes. It's about making sure that we're allowing, yes, external investment to come into Not Ireland allowing, to, fund, to fund the building breaks. of apartment blocks, which otherwise wouldn't be built. Why like would that's they not? that's why, the why reality. But, but because they're, they're not making viable. A return. They're not, because they're not viable if otherwise. If they're not viable, why are they, why are they doing it? They're doing it because they're it, going to make money. So instead, the state could be investing massive amounts there, of public money. There are 40 and could houses. be borrowing public money, but borrowing and investing to build public homes okay, on a massive scale. Are, That's the answer to the crisis. There are a few ones to explain why you think that, that investment funds are so badly needed 
in order to, to build and finance these apartment blocks? Well, they're needed for two reasons. Firstly, the government is allocating €4 billion Euro a year over the next five years to help tackle the housing crisis. But it's going to cost about €10 billion Euro a year to deliver enough homes to get us out of this. That's about 30,000 uh, 30 to 35,000 homes a year. That, that's a shortfall. Like we have, to, we have to be frank about it and we have to be practical about it. We require investment. We require developers. These are all part of the players that are part of the housing money. market. We could, of course, but we can't do it indefinitely forever. Not, not we generate a return from it. You get, you get, that's the reason they, they invest in them is that they end up with a profit at the end of but, it. They're not doing it for the good of the, their hearts. There's no reason that the state couldn't instead be investing more and building housing on building, a massive scale and decommodifying housing, meaning that it's not something that these investor funds are simply able to get a profit out of, but instead it's about providing a home for people, the basic right of people to and a home. that's what we're doing through Housing for All for homes okay. across the country. When it comes to apartment blocks, they are high-risk projects. They require an awful lot of funding up front. It's not like housing developments where you can have phase one, phase two and phase three. They, they require that investment straight up front. And, and that's where we need okay. institutional Gloria, investors to help, help us get those homes built. Once those homes are built, that's how we drive down rent. Okay. Um, uh, Rory, you've heard what Emer has to say on that. That's always been the government line, that we need these investment funds in order to build these apartments, in order to solve the housing crisis. And if, as your petition says, tax these investment funds, they will be disincentivized, they will go away, and what do we do then? Well, I think we need to look at the scale of the housing crisis and what's going on. I think my analysis is that these investment funds, and you can read their statements, their financial, what they're trying to do, and the whole development of the build to rent model, is to convert a generation into a generation that are permanent renting very high rents into these funds. And I think this is the danger that is what is happening, that Emer will say, we're building all these apartments, it's what we need to do. But the problem is these apartments are unaffordable, they, so they will lock people into rents permanently at this level. This is the problem. And so we are essentially saying to Generation Rent, you won't be able to buy a home in Dublin. You will only be able to rent exorbitant rents at high, high levels. But the institutional funds, this is the problem, that they are about trying to convert housing into essentially an investment asset. Housing for all, the plan, if the government wanted, they could have borrowed and they could still borrow. The SRI has made this recommendation very clearly. They could borrow an additional four to seven billion to invest in the state building of public homes, of cost rental, affordable rental homes. If we look internationally, we look at Berlin, for example. In Berlin, they're looking to buy back, essentially socialize the units of corporate landlords because they've had 15 years of these corporate landlords and what they do, they charge unaffordable rents. This is not a sustainable way to deliver housing. So if you didn't have the institutional funds, you could have different type of private investment that would be here, that wouldn't be chasing these massive rents, chasing these massive forms of build to rent that would offer homes for sale to people. We have the, the Okulon Cooperative, for example, is a way of delivering affordable homes for sale. Okay. Do we need to be just a little bit more ambitious about this, just in terms of the borrowing, what's required to actually solve the housing crisis? It's not just Rory saying that. We've had much commentary around um, this in terms of the housing for all, and is it really for all? And is it actually, because you have so much private investment trying to solve that crisis too, should they want a bit of, uh, they want a bit of money out of it, they want profit out of it, and are you going to bring the prices down and make homes affordable absolutely. for people in this country. Absolutely, and that's absolutely the goal of the Housing for All plan. So do you think €1,900 Euro a month no, rentals um, 
in one part of Dublin City for, is it a one bed apartment? One bed apartment. A one bed apartment. Absolutely not fair. I totally agree okay, with that. Okay, that's what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what we need to change. And the solution to that is having enough supply in the market that we're driving down the price. Would that That's happen if there's enough supply to. in the but market that that rental of €1,900 Euro a month that we're seeing right now would change in the coming years? Is that likely to happen, Rory? It's not likely to happen because if you look at what these funds are already doing, there's a number of developments in Dublin City where half the units are lying vacant because they're not getting the rents they want to get. And they can leave these units sit there vacant. And the problem is, at what point are these institutional investors going to start reducing their rents? They're not going to reduce the rents. They're going to maintain them at this higher level and actually they want them to continue to grow. And the problem with government policy is that it hasn't frozen rents, it hasn't capped rents, and the new rents is the big problem. These investment funds can charge whatever they rent they want for the new units that are built. And this is a big problem. And government has been called on for years to freeze rents, cap them, to include new rents, and they haven't done it because the reality is policy has become orientated towards what these institutional funds we want. Do, we do have a tweet in from someone defending government, or at least Fianna Fáil on this one. For the past 90 plus years, the only party to deliver large-scale housing has been the Fianna Fáil party. And for the first time in a decade, the country has a Fianna Fáil minister for housing again, meaning hashtag housing for all, Paul Murphy. I mean, Fianna Gael have been in government since 2011. Fianna Fáil have been backing them up since 2016. Um, and every single year, rents have continued to rise. Every single year, uh, yeah, and throughout the whole period, prices continue to rise. So the idea that all of a sudden it's going to start working, this, and, and the other point, in terms of housing for all, the government will talk about 300,000 homes, right, by 2030. But like, the majority of those homes are simply them hoping that the private market is going to deliver those homes. They have no control over what price they're going to be at, no control over whether people are going to be able to afford them. And public land continues to be sold off to private landlords. Incredible that public land, land that's owned by councils, is given away, is sold to private landlords, and a portion of the properties then built there are simply unaffordable for people to buy. It's Imer, a crazy situation. Imer, it's very important to note, we're talking about this, and we, we have focused on apartments um, in city centres. It's, it's a countrywide problem. It is, absolutely. You're, you're right. And that's, I suppose, why Housing for All has so much for different regions and different cities and, and different towns across Ireland, um, because it's looking at it from a holistic perspective as to what, what, what every area needs. Each local authority is now tasked with doing a housing needs and demands assessment as well. Yeah. And that's going to be used to formulate policies just for the levels of affordable okay, housing. OK, just something on Social Justice Ireland have said in their uh, pre-budget submission, saying the targets um, are based on a housing need and demand assessment of 30 32,700 new homes every year, which is inadequate, they say. It would deal with the new households seeking housing each year, but it does not take sufficient account of the stock of households currently seeking appropriate accommodation. So even under this plan, it's not going to go far enough. This, I mean, there's no point at this stage in saying before, before anything has happened from this plan, it's been debated in the doll last week. Like, let's, let's have faith in it. Let's give it a chance. Why wouldn't we? There's so much work has gone into this. This looks at things from so many different facets, from a cost rental perspective, the first long-term affordable leasing that we've ever had in this country, affordable housing schemes. It's, it's, it's mass social housing schemes. It's working collaboratively. It's different schemes for different parts of the country. There's so much work gone into this. There's so much effort gone into this. This is something the government 100% okay. wants to deliver. I We're just, pulling every lever we can. 
plan to deliver more houses because we do believe yes. that the more supply we have, the more that drives down the cost to Is own there going and to be any deviation from the plan in government? Are we expecting, uh, when it comes to the budget, are we expecting further announcements on housing? There's always going to be reviews of plans, absolutely. I mean, it's good governance to be reviewing plans and to be reviewing it continually. Do you think there'll be changes to the Housing for All plan? Over the next five years? Quite possibly, absolutely. And I mean, in the upcoming budget, I mean, when we're getting 38,000 signatures um, saying remove investor funds from buying up homes, uh, cut investor tax breaks, and tax uh, 50, uh, tax on 50% of their profits. Well, we'll, we'll, there is a demand for We'll it. know what happens in the budget in, in, in just under a week's time. Um, I don't want to be preempting anything that Minister Donoghue is going to be announcing, that's for sure. But, but what I will say is housing is absolutely fundamental and key to the government's objectives and to our goals. And fixing this is what we're working night and day to do. Okay, if you were to make changes to the budget and, and the plan around housing and, and solving the housing crisis, Paul Murphy, what would you do? What would be your immediate priority? I'd ban economic evictions. I'd introduce proper rent controls that actually bring rents down to an affordable level. And I would build public housing and genuinely affordable housing on a massive scale. That's that's what that's what that's what's needed. Uh, that's what anybody on the street would tell you is needed. And the question is, why isn't it happening? And it's because the government represents the landlords. It is. Nineteen out of twenty properties inspected in the last year were found to be inadequate rental properties. Renters have almost nothing in the housing for all uh, program. The government does not represent them at all. Uh, there, there was now Ivana Bacic put forward a series of reforms and proposals that she was hoping to see enacted. Are we likely to see changes around rights for tenants about this issue of churning out and, and evictions and when it, when it suits? Um, it, when it suits for the landlord to, to take someone out that they can. Yeah, M Minister O'Brien has already committed to bringing forward um, rental reforms for, for specifically to deal with renters um, in, in the next month or so. And he has said that he'd be looking quite closely at Ivana's bill and, and taking from it what he can. I mean, what, what both of your guests here have talked about is, is, is a blanket rent freeze. And I know that Dr Hearn referenced Berlin and, and we, saw the we saw what happened in Berlin when they tried to bring in a rent freeze. It didn't work. It was deemed unconstitutional. That would, that would likely end up being the same situation here where we'd end up with high court let's, challenges. Let's, let's introduce our, let's, let's pass our bill all the way then to have a right to housing in the I, constitution. I if that's a real objection, well, right, let's do well, that. Let's put it in the constitution. Do you know what? That's exactly what the government has committed to doing. No, no. We're setting up the housing commission with a view to having a housing referendum. A housing for exactly referendum. That not, not, unfortunately, if you look at the programme for government, it does not say a referendum put in the right to housing in the constitution and that's the crucial I, point. I think, that, I think that the government could be doing a lot more now straight away that I, I really think that if we look at this budget particularly the capital spend which is the spend on the building of social housing and what Emer mentioned cost rental which is a very positive development of the housing for all plan that affordable rental for people on middle incomes but the problem is there's not enough of it there there's only about 2,000 units planned per year over 10 years that's a drop in the ocean in comparison to we would need 5,000 cost rental units to be really having an impact providing people affordable rental homes the SRI as I said, said we can borrow to do that. Um, and I do think the right to housing in the referendum, the referendum, sorry, I should say, to put the right to housing in the constitution is very key because there are rental measures that are needed that would require that change. Okay, my thanks uh, to our panel, to Paul and Rory. Emer Higgins will be staying with us. And after the break, Dr. Coleman knocked her on the sharp increase in eating disorders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, a Facebook whistleblower today testified before a US Senate subcommittee and claimed the social media giant puts profit before people. Francis Haugen, who shared a trove of Facebook documents alleging the social media giant knew its products were fueling hate and harming children's mental health, was giving evidence to a Senate subcommittee. I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Fine Gael, Seymour Higgins is still here and is joined by Dr. Coleman Nocter, psychotherapist, and training and development manager at Bodywise, Harriet Parsons. You're all very welcome along. Um, now, those internal documents that were gathered by Francis Haugen, who gave that evidence today, show that Facebook knows that Instagram is toxic for teenage girls. And uh, the, the internal study found that 17% of teenage girls they surveyed said Instagram makes eating disorders worse. Harriet, were you surprised when you heard about this evidence? Um, not at all, really. That's something that we would have heard a lot about. And we know that social media um, creates an environment in which eating disorders can thrive. And the pressure that people feel um, from scrolling different social media apps um, kind of exacerbate all of that distorted thinking that's part of an eating disorder. Um, so while they might not necessarily cause an eating disorder, they certainly exacerbate it and can um, you know, trigger people who might be vulnerable to developing eating disorders. Um, in social media as well, of course, there's advertising is, is a huge part of it. And what part do you think algorithms play in you know, adolescent uh, girls, young women, seeing things and then receiving more information and a deluge of images, of pictures, of weight loss ads off the back of whatever they've been searching. How problematic is that? It's really problematic and um, it's really influential. I know that, I mean, I talk about eating disorders all the time and use words like um, food and fat and diet and exercise and my feed is filled with ads for you know walk to weight loss look like this you know um, do try this diet do you know all the time practically all the ads in all my social media feeds are that so if I'm getting that um, you know young people are also getting that as well and after a while it does start to have an influence and it's really that you know you don't even realize the influence that it has on you and that's the really dangerous part. Um, 
Coleman, when we look at eating disorders, it's not just about eating behaviour, is it? It's, it's around self-worth and control. What part does social media, do you think, play in all of this? I think, I mean, if we look at, at body image uh, as a representation of our own value and worth on ourselves, you know, on January we all go on a diet because we want to change something about ourselves. And so we, if we measure our value and worth through weight uh, or shape or size or diet, then things like an echo chamber in Instagram is kind of echoing that and saying that's, that's the right way to look at this. We have to remember that the, the online world is, is a parent-free space. There's no pers person there that's going to say you've had enough. And the algorithm can't tell you who's looking at what. So if I'm looking up uh, something on weight loss, it doesn't know that I'm an 11-year-old or a 13-year-old mm -hmm. who's you know, really, really vulnerable, or whether I'm a 35-year-old just trying to live healthily. And you're absolutely right. The issue with the algorithm is it gathers information. When we go online, we search what we're vulnerable about. We go to online what we wouldn't tell our friends or we wouldn't ask those questions. And it hacks our vulnerability and exposes us to, you know, you could get products like, like you know, I look up something. I remember a few years ago, I looked at, I got a, I looked at a slender tone belt, if you can imagine. And they got all the stuff about pre-workout drinks, post-workout drinks, nearly legal steroids, kind of an, an absolute deluge of stuff on the algorithm based on that search. And so when young people are there and they're vulnerable and they're looking at what is normal, it's not up to Instagram or Facebook to tell them what's normal, but that's the reference point with which they have. Yeah, and actually that ex-employee, Frances Huygens, pointed to that when she said Facebook's own research says as young women begin to consume this eating disorder content, they get more and more depressed. It makes them use the app more and they end up in a feedback cycle where they actually hate their bodies more and more. And you know, I'm wondering with all of this that there is so much in the area of regulation, even around advertising and post-watershed and what we can show on television, but there is nothing that can help um, young women and adolescent girls and boys, you know, and we're not even just talking about that, we're talking about grown women and grown men, um, from protect them in this environment. So what yeah. needs to be done, do you think? You're right. I, I don't think, and it's not just an Irish problem, I think worldwide, our laws haven't caught up to where social media is at. And um, this is actually something I raised today in the doll. Um, I suppose even when you think all of us yesterday had a glimpse as to what the world without Facebook and Instagram looks like. And some people were lost looking for apps and what, what will they do with their evening? But for other people, they didn't have that source of anxiety in their hand or in their pocket. And I think that's just so powerful to, to just even think about that because that is what's happening for an awful lot of people. And Facebook, Clearly, I don't believe uh, from, from, the leaked, from the leaked documentation, from, from the information that we have and from the testimony that we've seen today, it really does look like Facebook are not prioritising people's online safety. And I think the government needs to do that. Do what now exactly? Well, we have the online uh, social media regulation bill coming before the houses of the Oireachtas. I think it's really important that we, that we get that done, that we get it done quick, so that we have a new online safety action plan. Our last one has, has come to fruition. We need to make sure we're investing resources so into this. So it's come to fruition and what's come of it? We had, we had an online action plan and we've achieved an awful lot from it and it's run its course, but the online so, world has changed dramatically in that time and we need to now have a plan that's, that's, that's not just caught up with it, but that's able to actually flex and adapt as new innovations and new technology and new apps come on board. And that's why it's so important that the likes of Webwise and different organisations like that who really have their fingers yeah. in the pulse in this and talk to parents, that they, have, that they have the funding they need to be able to have those dialogues with parents yes. to be able to 
have those about, workshops. It is about schools. education and about yeah. workshops in schools and and for that awareness to be out there in the round. But just specifically on what government is doing, like how, how much teeth is, is in those action plans? When you're talking about big tech that we give a really nice time to here in fairness now, they don't, they, they, they have a great setup uh, when, they, when they set up here in Ireland, the Facebooks, yeah, the right. Googles. Um, and there is a big question. I mean, it's a question that's been raised globally but we have an opportunity here in Ireland to do something about it. You're right. And I think we actually have, have, a, have a greater opportunity than elsewhere because we have a lot of these tech companies actually here in Dublin and here in Ireland. And I think we have the opportunity through this law and we've already led the way in things like Coco's Law, but through the online safety regulation media bill to be able to, 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 to have change. I mean, I know there's an awful lot of work going on, the EU Commission on this as well. Obviously, Washington is looking at it. But, but I think there is an opportunity for Ireland to lead the way, to make sure that we get that bill as comprehensive as possible. I know Minister Catherine Martin is doing a huge amount of work on it, to get it, to get it out there, and to what, make it happen. And what sort of submissions or what have you heard from Facebook on it? Um, well, I suppose uh, not necessarily on that, but Facebook wa was before our housing committee on a similar issue recently. And I have to say, honestly, I was quite disappointed with an awful lot of the tech companies that came before our committee that day because I did feel that they were, were giving us excuses as opposed to, to, to actual action. Honestly, and I do think like Twitter, for example, when it comes to things like anonymous accounts, I really believe they should be held accountable. I really think that that's fueling online negativity. That's that's fueling intimidation or harassment. Harry, do you think we've reached that point that something has to be done or we're going to see lives lost here? I think we've already seen lives lost. Um, I think that's already happened. I think we all have to act. Yeah, I think we absolutely have to do something about it. I mean, Pinterest recently have banned weight loss ads on their platform. And I think it's just, you know, a matter of time for the other social media apps to follow suit. Um, but we have to do something. And people accessing um, your services, will they say this has actually got far worse, maybe in times of lockdown when they had more time to themselves, when instead of reaching out for support from friends, they're going online to get that, you know, to get that support or think they're going to be able to find it there. And, and, and they're simply not. Well, certainly during lockdown, I suppose what we found was young people, well, old people, but young people in particular um, spent a lot of time online, both um, for school, um, for their social life um, and for a sense of normality, a sense of, well, what is everyone else doing? And so they were very vulnerable to, um, to the pressures that social media presents to them. Uh, lockdown as well and all the restrictions really put coping mechanisms to test, didn't they, Coleman? And um, what have you seen um, in your practice and, and clients coming to you now and, and problems that they've maybe, you know, experienced and, and triggers that have come about as a result of the last 18 months? Well, we're definitely seeing an increase in referrals for eating behaviours and, and disordered eating. And I think over the last 18 months, none of us had a sense of control over our lives. You know, we, were li we were waiting on re kind of recommendations and, and restrictions being lifted. And when we do that, we try and over control. You know, we saw that last March when we all ran out and bought toilet roll. You know, it was just to just try and control things. 
when young people are feeling overwhelmed, food weight and shape is something they can control. So they absolutely overinvest in activity levels, food intake, and it feel it gives them a sense of mastery to begin with, and then it creates a much much greater problem. And when we've had, uh, and I think you know how I was speaking about this, when you don't have somebody to bounce something off, and you're just left to your own devices to make up your own decisions around how much is enough in terms of food and exercise. And there was lots of young people who were you know given programs from their sporting teams to kind of work individually. And there was, you know, children going online to look at hit videos on, on YouTube, but doing it six and seven times a day rather than the recommended once. And so the idea of, of just trying to over control an element of their lives when everything else was out of control. And Harriet, in terms of accessing treatment, mm -hmm. what sort of delays are we seeing now? Well, we're seeing huge increase in referrals. Um, so the hospitals are reporting a 66% increase in hospital admissions from um, last June. Um, we have seen um, pretty much this year in 2021, a kind of 200% increase in parents attending our support services, our, our support programme, our pillar programme. Um, all of our service, uh, people attending our services are up a huge increase okay. and that's across the services. So that's putting a huge demand on services. And, and can organisations like your own, can services cope with that in terms of the bed numbers are there, the, the treatment that's available for people who so badly need your services? Well, so what, what, when you look at the figures, what you see is that where the funding has come through for the specialist eating disorder teams, those teams that are in place and funded properly are seeing people quickly. 81% of under 18s were seen under four weeks within those specialist services. But um, where the services aren't specialist, so where, they, um, where they're not in place yet, we're seeing huge demand on those services and long waiting lists um, and people not getting assessed quickly, treated quickly, um, and then back out into their lives. So what's really shown in the pandemic and in the way the, ser the specialist services have responded is that when funding is in place, people get treated quicker. Okay, you heard what Harriet had to say there, Emer. when the funding is in place, people get that treatment they need. Yeah. So what's going to happen in the budget? Yeah, well, I suppose even before the budget, the minister has committed to to, to funding throughout this throughout the year um, for eating disorder units, as, as Harriet has mentioned. There'll be a doubling of the current um, the current specialist teams between now and the end of the year. That's what the minister is committed to. Um, I believe recruitment is already underway, um, and I suppose recruitment can't happen fast enough, as far as all of us are concerned. Because what we want is we want that funding put to use. We want those teams in in place. We want to be providing the support to people who so desperately yeah. need it at the moment. Do you know that the level of mental health funding is just ridiculously low in this country in terms of the allocation on the health budget. It represents 10%, 5% of spend on mental health. The government's own target is 10%, but it hasn't reached it. Yeah, what we did have last year in the budget was was historic mental health funding. Um, and that was really... From Obviously, a very badly low base. Unfortunately, so. But I suppose it, it was it was raised quite substantially last year on the basis of COVID, and unfortunately, the repercussions that we'll all be going through for a while. I think I would very much be expecting to see um, good news for the mental health budget again next week. Okay, because there there have been calls. The CEO of Mental Health Reform has said. You know, the government should follow up on its commitment and invest an additional 10 million euro into mental health services. 
Yeah, and, and that is absolutely part of what's under consideration. I, I obviously can't comment on the budget and, and, and wouldn't even know the detail of it at this stage. But what I will say is that the, the mental health budget that was put in last year was in recognition of the fact that there is going to be long-term repercussions from a mental health perspective of COVID. And that's true again this year. Coleman, if um, people don't get treatment and you know those vulnerable adolescent girls that we're talking about are experiencing delays, what sort of fallout is there? It's huge fallout. Early intervention is incredibly important in this. And eating disorder is the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. So most people with that condition do uh, encounter huge amounts of physical and psychological, you know, longer term deficits. It, it can't be something that has to wait. It has to be now. Uh, and, and again, the, for families out there, the pressure that somebody with an eating disorder creates on the whole system, parents under her mental, uh, credible pressure to, to provide mental health support for their children at home without the support of services, trying to feed their child three times a day, it could be six hours trying to work with a child. So yes, we need to do something now, we need to do it quickly, yeah. Okay, and just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines and we'll leave it there with our panel and um, my thanks to you all and coming up after the break we cross live to the US to CNN correspondent Tom Foreman. Welcome back. Well, now we're crossing live to CNN correspondent Tom Foreman as the Facebook whistleblower today gave evidence before the US Senate. You're very welcome along, Tom. And what more can you tell us about that evidence that was given today by Frances Haugen, the ex-employee um, from Facebook in front of the Senate? Well, it seemed a lot less like whistleblowing and a lot more like flamethrowing. Certainly it had to be for Facebook because what she had to say confirmed what many critics have been able to say from the outside looking in for a while, but importantly with an insider's insights. She's only there for two years, but basically what she said is yes, Facebook is aware of how some of the programs it works out there, how they affect the well-being, the mental health, particularly of younger people, driving them to, to have depressive thoughts, bad thoughts about suicide and otherwise by affecting body image through things like Instagram, things like that. But beyond that, she also indicated that Facebook has an awful lot of internal research that the public does not know about that she would indicate uh, tells the company that it is affecting the political conversation in a negative way, that it's allowing falsehoods, it's allowing uh, dangerous movements to spread through it, it's allowing other governments to use it for purposes of spying on its citizens. She's suggesting that Facebook really is aware of all of this and letting it all happen, while of course Facebook has deployed its people to appear on different shows and say, no, 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 that's a mischaracterization. That's not cr true. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to be transparent. But undeniably, her testimony today did a lot of damage to that company's efforts to fend off the type of regulation they would not want at the government level. And a bad week in general for Facebook, uh, Tom, that worldwide outage occurring just yesterday. Um, can the company recover from this? Can it promise that there'll be a resilience that outages like this won't happen again? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's roughly a trillion dollar company. I think companies that big can probably recover from almost anything. 
More importantly, though, is this general question of trust. Yeah, this whole outage thing didn't help a bit. But this whole notion that if Facebook becomes truly tarred with the brush of saying you really are a propaganda wing that has been co-opted by one group and you're letting that happen, and you really are being used as a tool of governments to repress people or manipulate people, if that starts emerging as the true identity of Facebook, then even though they have tremendous value and they can hang in there, it will absolutely eat away at them. And then you might say, uh, as somebody told me long, long ago, they said, look, one day Facebook will be looked back on like we look at early internet uh, services that were out there that now we can barely remember. One day that is coming. This process could speed that up. But again, trillion dollar company, can they survive for now? Can they bounce back for now? Sure, and they're putting out a huge marketing effort to do just that. In broader U.S. news, Tom, former U.S. President Donald Trump, he's back in the headlines, isn't he? Um, and his bid for a 2024 campaign has now been paused. Tell us about that. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Republicans overwhelmingly think of Donald Trump as the head of their party. They think he is the man. They're totally behind him in, in just gigantic numbers out there. However, some of them are distinctly aware of how much he is both uh, infuriating and frightening the people who do not support him. And there is a real phenomenon with Donald Trump. The same thing that makes him energize Republican supporters energizes the opposition. They really do not like him. They really don't want him to win. So the fear among some advisors is that if Donald Trump says he's definitely running for president, then that hurts the chances of Republicans taking back the House and Senate in the elections in uh, next year. Beyond that, there's the notion that if they don't succeed in taking it back, then that gets tagged to Donald Trump as the presidential candidate. So basically, although he has wanted to say, I'm the person out here, you should support me, and he absolutely will not brook the idea of anyone else running for president right now, some advisors are saying you need to hold back there's nothing but downside in this for you. There's no upside. And Donald Trump is already raising money hand over fist anyway. So what's the advantage of saying where he wants to go with that money? Okay, well, let's talk about uh, the current man in the White House, Joe Biden. Um, there were rating polls out at the weekend. They made for some interesting reading. Yeah, uh, the president's, uh, the current, the president's, um, position right now uh, in the polls is not good. He has dropped underwater below 50%. He's in the neighborhood, not as bad as Donald Trump's numbers were. Donald Trump is the only president in modern times who never really got past the 50% mark on his best day. Most Americans, most days, did not think he was a good president. Uh, Joe Biden started off considerably better than that, but he's had a precipitous fall over the summer. The difficulties in the, the pullout from Afghanistan, the problems with the Delta variant of the COVID virus, and the inability to get more Americans to take the vaccine, all of that has really played against Joe Biden. You know, it's sad to say, much to the delight of his Republican opposition. Now we're having budget issues here, a debate about what's called the debt ceiling, which could, could drive the economy into tremendous turmoil if the Democrats can't solve it. All of that is landing on Joe Biden's desk, simply put, because so many Americans say 
if you have the Senate, even by one vote, if you have the House and you have the White House, why isn't your party fixing everything? It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's sort of where we stand at the moment for Joe Biden, and it really is profoundly affecting his numbers. Important to note here, though, really important to note, Republicans have been completely opposed to him from the beginning. Democrats remain very strongly in his camp. It's the independent, moderate voters in the middle. They're the ones who have really tipped the numbers against him as they have become disillusioned. And the other important thing to remember in all that, that does not mean that those voters necessarily like the Republicans any better or like Donald Trump any better. Okay. They just like Joe Biden less. Right. Okay. Tom Foreman, CNN correspondent, thanks for joining us tonight. Good chat. And that is it from us. Our program is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.